I'm Tom Morello, and you're listening to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up, you've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host David Feldman. And David, hello, how you doing? Good morning, Steve. This is very exciting. We're all on video. Exactly. We're doing something completely different today. Those of you listening on the radio should know that this show was taped in front of a live Zoom audience. It's very exciting. And listeners are going to, you'll hear from our listeners who have submitted questions. And we're not only joined by our studio audience, our producer, Jimmy D. Wirt, associate producer, Hannah Feldman are here with us. You'll definitely hear Hannah's voice. And our audience here gets a little peek behind the curtain. They get to see how the sausage is made. And we assure you the sausage being made follows all federally mandated safety guidelines. So now to welcome our first chief inspector, Mr. Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. All around the world. Thank you. We've got a great topic today, a great guest, and it's very relevant. And it's about advocating for yourself. Advocating for yourself in the face of powerful people is difficult. We all know that. Regular listeners of our show know how that is. No matter how many times you write to your senator pushing them to work for you in Congress or appeal to your health insurance when they deny you coverage for no good reason or just try to get your internet fixed, each time can feel like you're right back to square one. With his new book, Power to the People, Richard Panchik takes us all back to the basics. His book is written as a civic advocacy guide for young people, but the lessons are just as vital for any citizen trying to reclaim their power. What are our rights? How can we protect them? And perhaps most importantly, when someone, human and non-human person alike, infringes on them, what can we do about it? So we're excited to have Mr. Panchak here to discuss his new book and how to harness people power. After that, Ralph and Richard will answer some questions from our live virtual audience. As always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our relentless corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, let's explore all the ways we the people can be powerful too. David? This book is a gift. Richard Panchik is an author whose books include World War II for Kids, Archaeology for Kids, and Our Supreme Court. His latest book is Power to the People, A Young People's Guide to Fighting for Our Rights as Citizens and Consumers. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Richard Panchik. Thank you, David and Steve. I'm glad to be here. Welcome indeed, Richard. We're going to start in an unorthodox way. And that is that whenever injustices are portrayed before the public, the question is, how do people get more rights and remedies to deal with these injustices? You know, they're shut out and powerless. I want to start today by talking about the lack of fuller use of the rights and remedies they already have. As we know, in the United States, over half of the people don't vote. They don't use the civil justice system that is theirs to be used. They don't have to ask anybody for permission. They can have a right of trial by jury and go to a contingent fee lawyer. And the vast majority don't even know that they have that right, much less use it. Millions of people are wrongfully injured every year in the United States, from the streets to the corporate suites. And they don't use even something as simple as small claims courts, where they don't need a lawyer, and they should just go and plead their case. So you've had a whole career of writing books for kids. You wrote books on cities, Boston for kids, Chicago for kids, Washington, D.C. for kids, bringing in very vibrant way the history of those metropolitan areas, 
one of your best, I think, Supreme Court for kids. Why have you, among your dozens of books that you've written, starting when you were in early 20s, why have you directed your energies toward writing books for kids? These are serious books. We're not talking, you know, picture books. We're talking books that adults would find at a sufficient level of respect. Yes, I've always believed that it's so important to teach children about these topics that in some cases people believe to be topics that are only to be relegated to adults. But in fact, it's extremely important for kids to learn about these things when they're still kids. Because what we don't realize is when you're 10, 11, 12, 13, you're only a few years away from being able to vote, to join the army, to have all these rights that adults have. And if you reach that age without having learned these things, then how are you gonna learn them? If you're learning them only in college, it's too late at that point. You need to understand, I think kids need to understand certain things like the Supreme Court, like what I talk about in Power to the People at an early age. And besides that, it's also, these books are always written with, you know, for an adult audience as well. So if you're reading these books as a guide, as an adult, it's going to teach you as well. I start from the basics and I try to cover things from different perspectives that other books don't. And I think that's also important to not talk down to kids, to really believe in their ability to understand things at a higher level and to approach things from all angles, because that's what we want kids to do when they, as they grow up is to look at things from all angles and understand things from all perspectives, not just be tunnel vision, single-minded in ways that perhaps their schools or their parents or their friends might have influenced them. And standing in the way of your objective are giant social media corporations like Facebook, Instagram, Google, and others. And their impact is 24-7. You have a book called Power to the People, A Young People's Guide to Fighting for Our Rights as Citizens and Consumers, published by Seven Stories Press. And they have the minds of a billion young people around the world exposed to what they are profiting from. How do you deal with that? How do you counteract the social media incarceration of these kids bringing out personal information, selling it to advertisers, making huge profits, and in many ways, allowing these children to be exposed to a system of communication that is often nasty, cruel, intimidating. There have been some young people who've been so overwhelmed by this, they've committed suicide. The Congress has had hearings begging Instagram and others to lighten up on children. Imagine these companies are raising our children, circumventing family authority and discipline. How do you deal with that? It's very difficult. And in fact, I just saw an interview with a Facebook executive on TV yesterday where he's defending Facebook's you know, approach to how they put out information and basically saying that it's the onus falls on us to believe or not believe that we're intelligent enough that we should screen things and we should be the, the arbiters. But it is difficult because what's happening is kids are basically being, they're growing up. They're growing up with these social media companies 
and they're acting as if they're adults on social media and social media can be a good thing. I'll say that there, there is one thing that I see that social media can do for us as people in general, which is kind of give us the same voice that a corporation might have as far as the reach. Anyone can reach the same, perhaps the same audience as anyone else on social media. And that is both in some ways a good thing and in many ways a bad thing. And I think holding social media companies accountable for, like you said, when there's a suicide, when people are bullied or injured, or when there's false claims that lead to bad things happening, they have to be held accountable. Just like any other company that's producing an actual product, a physical product, whether it's a car or if it's a medical malpractice thing and you're injured, part of the problem is understanding and recognizing that injury that what tort law is all about, being injured or harmed in some way, is encompassed by also by these types of things that social media can do. The injury that they can do to our kids is actionable, and we must not stand by and watch these things happen. And I think it's really part of the issue is for everyone to understand that tort law, that civil law, that our rights include being able to stand up against companies that are putting information out there, that are putting platforms out there, that really it's not just about physical uh-huh. things. I think we ought to talk about, Richard, the kind of language that is used here. And we're not really spelling out what these companies are all about. For example, they call themselves social media. Well, in their worst moments, and there are a lot of worst moments, These companies are electronic child molesters. That's what they are. They exploit these children at their weakest points. They know what their frailty is. They induce the distribution of the most personal information, which these youngsters give free. They incarcerate them with terms and conditions that these youngsters don't even see, fine print contracts. And they basically make them more and more dependent with text messages and a circle of so-called friends, which is exposed worldwide to various kinds of penetrations. And we just don't have the language for this. We don't use words like corporate crime, corporate welfare, corporate violence, when by far the greatest source of preventable violence in our country comes from corporate misbehavior, like 5,000 people a week dying in hospitals in this country from preventable problems, according to the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine report, a peer-reviewed study. 5,000 a week, and it isn't even talked about in the media. It isn't even the subject of electoral activity for people running for office. So why don't you tell us about local economies? You can start with that story of your great-grandfather and what happens when these giant corporations, absentee control, hollow out Main Street, not just Amazon, I might add. Yes. Well, and in the book, I talk about, you know, we have to look at how things used to be and things used to be such that every economy around the country and around the world was a local economy because before there was a setup that transportation could allow for the shipment of goods before railroads, before trucks and ships that could, canals that could carry stuff, 
everything was made in your local place, in your village, and people were basically equals because you may have been the baker, I may have been the butcher, and somebody else was the miller and the blacksmith. So everybody had a function, and their function was always dependent on other people. It was an interconnected system, and it was only when things began to change in the Industrial Revolution and beyond that, that the balance of power changed because now we had the ability to ship things and really the ability to keep things fresher, to package them, and companies began to grow. So for example, my great-great-grandfather came here from Germany and started a pickle business, and he pickled horseradish and other things and sold it, bottled it, sold it, and he had some accounts that he delivered to hotels, et cetera, saloons in New York City. Well, at some point, Best Foods, which was a big corporation even back in the 1920s, offered him to buy him out, and he refused. And basically then his company just, that was the end of the company, it couldn't compete. So this is what happens. And if you look, you see everywhere around the country, around the world, that downtowns are generally speaking failing because the local economy that had thrived so well through the 19th and early 20th centuries was tanking thanks to these chain stores, these big retailers. And you may not even think some of them, like you know, you said Amazon, and you may not think some of the stores are as big as they are. But when you look at look it up, you look up CVS, Rite Aid, these drugstores, these other stores, retail, supermarkets, basically anything you can think of, that they're all huge corporations. And in often cases, they're controlled by, they're companies that are controlled by corporations that have many holdings that are international corporations. And this has happened for me personally, this has impacted me as an author, because when I started publishing books many years ago, it was a different situation. There were so many independent publishers and independent bookstores. And now we see that all these publishers have conglomerated into only a few. Seven Stories is an independent one, thankfully, but there are so many that are now part of these large corporations that are not even American corporations. So it's happening everywhere. And it's a very dangerous thing because local economies within, whether it's within a village or town or your city or your state, depend on people buying things that are made and are people who are employed by local companies. And it's very important for many reasons for that to happen. And when that falls apart, it creates a situation where your community is depending on corporations that are based far, far away for its livelihood. And that's just not a good thing. My local town where I live we have a support your local business week after Thanksgiving, and they send out coupons for you to use with local businesses. And I think everybody needs to do things like that to get the local economies back in business and take the power away from these corporations. As you put in your book, Richard, you can hold local businesses more accountable. You can go and eyeball them. They're more sensitive to mistakes they made in the local town. Whereas these large corporations are basically absentee owners. They're run by highly paid CEOs and other executives and some skyscrapers in 
Chicago, Tokyo, London, New York, and they don't have a feel for the town because they don't need to have a feel for the town. So they strip these local communities of economic democracy. And as we all know, if you don't have economic democracy, it's hard to have political democracy. But now it becomes even more critical because if you have these long supply chains all over the world for products that we can produce in our country, you have problems of shortages. We had this pandemic. We didn't have the protective equipment, the simple masks and other equipments. They were produced in Italy and elsewhere, and nurses and doctors were caught short in emergency rooms with the COVID-19. You have shortages in many, many other critical areas now because we have made this country not self-reliant, but dependent on far, far sources controlled by large corporations who treat their workers in these less developed countries as serfs, paying them surf wages, no unions, no protections, no pollution controls. And all this is then sent back to increasingly hollowed out communities in the U.S. I mean, look at the state of Main Street in these towns. I mean, boarded up stores all over the place, empty retail establishments. So you mentioned in your book, we're talking with Richard Pencheck, the author of Power to the People, A Young People's Guide to Fighting for Our Rights as Citizens and Consumers. Why don't you describe some of the existing rights, especially you spend quite a bit on the law of torts, the long wrongful injury, because millions of Americans are wrongfully injured every year, and not a tiny fraction ever see a lawyer to hold their perpetrator, the wrongdoers, accountable and increase deterrence. So you mentioned the Tort Museum, which we established in Connecticut, the American Museum of Tort Law. But you go into a very clear explanation of the law of torts so people can't say, well, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't really understand it. Why don't you take us through these steps? Yeah. So this is true what you said. People are not taking advantage of this constitutional right that they have to get justice for something that has that they have been wronged for and again this is there's two different branches here there's criminal law and there's civil law so we're talking about you can be held accountable for criminal issues as well as civil so i think people are far more familiar with criminal law than they are with civil law and it's your constitutional right if you've been wronged by a person or a company to take action and get justice. So, you know, there are basically three kinds of torts that can be committed, intentional, negligent, or reckless. And I think a lot of people are not familiar, not, they don't understand how this plays out, but there are times when someone will do something to you intentionally, to injure you intentionally, fully knowing that it's a problem, whether it's a person or a company, that has, for example, let's say they have used faulty brakes in their cars that they manufacture because it was cheaper and they knew this was a problem and their studies showed it, or whether it's a cigarette company maybe that has tobacco company that knew that there were health issues related to cigarettes, but they didn't warn the consumer. So, and then there's negligence, which is carelessness, which is also something you can be held accountable for. And there's simply reckless behavior, which is, again, not an excuse to injure somebody. So 
people have to be aware. And that's why, again, it's important for kids to know these things so that they can grow up understanding that they have these rights. And like you said, very small, tiny fraction of people are actually filing or actually taking their rights and using them. And I think there is a, a perception out there that it's the opposite, that everyone's suing, that we're a very litigious society, when in fact, that's really not true. And the other important thing to note is that many, many of the cases are actually settled before they wind up in court. And when a case is settled, it simply means that both sides agree that it would be beneficial for this particular lawsuit to go away and for the parties to come to an agreement before it reaches a trial. So basically with anything that you're talking about relating to tort law, a company has a duty, a person has a duty in a transaction with another person or in a society. And if they have breached that duty, then that's where you start to see whether or not this is something that can become a civil lawsuit. If a company or a person has breached the duty, let's say their duty is to, to manufacture something that you will use. And if that item that they have manufactured is faulty in some way, whether it's intentional negligence or recklessness, whatever the case, they have breached their duty. And then you have to look at causation. Was there a reason that you were injured because of this breach of duty? In your book, you give a lot of examples, not just tobacco, even holding dangerous toy manufacturers accountable. They have harmed and killed children just with these dangerous toys. And then you go through other aspects of our economy and apply cases that have already been brought to make cars safer, pharmaceuticals safer, chemicals taken from the marketplace because they were unsafe the impact on people, respiratory disease, workplace hazards. You really have it all here in your chapters. It's very, very clear. You say, what are torts and tort law? How does a tort law trial work? Let's settle this. Who can you sue? The evolution of tort law. Coffee, cakes, and toys. Oh, my. People power. Every voice counts. People pressure change for the better. In prior programs, Richard, we made a big deal on it. It only takes 1% or less of people organized in congressional districts, of which there are 435, sending members to the House of Representatives in 50 states, two senators. Less than 1% organized, knowing what they're talking about, reflecting public opinion, so it includes conservative and liberal people who at the level of where they live, work, and raise their family, often don't have these conflicting abstract ideologies that the Republican Democratic Party work to divide and rule. And all over, you see something which we don't like to talk about, Richard, and that is that most people are not willing to exert themselves to achieve power, to deal with afflictions, deprivations, grievances that they describe are happening to themselves. This is no theoretical description of people getting ripped off. They're getting ripped off in their computerized billing. They're getting ripped off in denial of health insurance claims that are accurate. They're getting ripped off with these small print contracts that take away their legal rights, including their rights to go to court. And they 
are angry about it, but they're not willing to get out there, run for local office, demand that we have better candidates at the state and national level. So I was so frustrated with this during my presidential campaign that people just wouldn't use the power available to them. They wouldn't spend time as citizens that I decided I was going to start the American Society of Apathetics. And its membership is obviously free and simple. You don't have any rights because of the society's dedication to no exertions whatsoever, except to recite the solemn oath of the apathetic to yourself. And here's the oath. The minute you say it, you're a member of the Society of Apathetics. There's a very important point here, Richard, that has to be made. Self-inflicted powerlessness. Okay, here's the oath of the apathetics. Quote, as a member of the American Society of Apathetics, I solemnly swear and declare that I will endure any injustice, accept any abuse, absorb any disrespect, suffer any deprivation, concede any exclusion, inhale any toxics, and avoid any public responsibilities in order to defend my inalienable right to apathy. So help me, my descendants, and my country, end quote. That's it. And we're soliciting people who want to join the Society of Apathetics to see how that compares with the membership for our Congress Club, which is composed of people who want to get engaged, who believe in we the people who know that the history of our country has almost been invariably an advance of justice only because of the exertion of ordinary people who do extraordinary things. Abolish slavery, women's right to vote, labor union organizing, Social Security, Medicare, all these things throughout history started with a few people who said, we've had enough. That's not the way we want our livelihood. That's not what our country stands for. Tell us what you have experienced, because you've written all these books for kids, and I'm sure you've wondered about why books on frivolous topics, books on mysteries, books on cats outsell serious books that are fun to read that you've written. Give us your view on this. I think we have to be very candid with the people here. It's a What you bring up is a real issue, and I would say that, for example, my World War II for Kids book is my best-selling book. And while it is a, is a great book, my book on the Supreme Court has sold so, so, so many less copies, just a fraction of the copies of World War II. So I think the society in general, the people who, you know, and the people who are buying the books aren't the kids themselves, generally speaking. It's the adults, the guardians, the parents, the teachers, the homeschoolers, the relatives, they see that certain topics they believe are going to be interesting for kids and important for kids to learn about. And while World War II is a historic topic that should be learned about, it's unequal as far as what other topics are being learned about. I have a book on Franklin Delano Roosevelt for kids that is one of my least selling books, yet it's covering the same time period as World War II for kids. So Franklin Delano Roosevelt as a person, not important enough, not interesting enough. World War II, interesting and important. And I think this is a big problem. I think our priorities are wrong. I think you're correct about the society, the apathetic people 
I just, in general, I feel like they'll be too apathetic to even join the society. That's a problem too. But the 1% rule is true. It only takes one person to start. It takes a few people. If you think about your congressional district or your state or your city or whatever, if you have 500,000 people there, 1% is 5,000. Imagine having 5,000 people show up on the front steps of City Hall or on the front steps of the State House. That's a lot of people. That makes an impact. 1% is important. And anybody, I've come across so many people who have said their vote doesn't count. And it's just very, very hurtful that I could live in a place where people actually think that their vote doesn't count. And as we've seen in previous elections, if we took all the people, for example, in the last, I think, 2016, if we took all the people who could have voted and didn't, they could have elected their own candidate independent of everybody else who already voted, a separate person, because there are that many people who didn't vote. I think priorities are wrong. People are motivated by the wrong types of issues. They're motivated by the wrong topics. They should be learning about the important things that they need to understand. And I think, well, go ahead. Let me interrupt you here. I mean, you're basically pointing to our educational system. Just think of how much time we spent studying wars, waging wars, and almost no time spent waging peace, diplomacy, anticipating conflict, heading it off, and only having properly congressionally declared wars, not wars initiated by the presidents in Iraq and elsewhere, Bush and Cheney. The other problem is a lot of people say, well, what are you blaming people like that? I mean, do you know what it takes to get through a day for millions of people, the torment, the poverty? And our answer to that is 1% or less in any given subject. You can change the tax system with 1% or less because there's overwhelming popular support for fair taxation and not letting the rich and powerful and big corporations escape taxation. Sometimes they don't pay any taxes and make billions of dollars of profit in a year, like General Electric did a number of years ago. You just take any subject and look at American history. It's proven. It has never taken more than 1% to make all the changes that we like about our country handed down to us by our forebears. Even the civil rights movement never involved more than 1% of people spending consistently a few hours a week, year after year, on the struggle. And that was true for progressive taxation. It was true for all the social service areas throughout the country. So I think we got to pay attention, even if we have to use a little satire, like the Society of the Apathetics, to shake people up. How many of us talk to people every day, and they're always down. You know, these politicians are crooks. They won't listen to us. I don't want to even get involved. I don't want to get my hands dirty. I'm just going to live my private life and try to make it as pleasant as possible. The answer to that problem is they're not going to let you live your private life as pleasant as possible. If you don't change the health insurance system, there'll be another 100,000 Americans who die because they can't afford health insurance to get diagnosed and treated in time. Millions more injured and sick, plus the billions of dollars of fraud, actually $360 billion in computerized billing fraud just in the healthcare industry. That's with a B, billion, according to the experts in the field. And that was considered by Professor Malcolm Sparrow at Harvard, the applied mathematician, as the smallest estimate, $360 billion a year. 
So if you're not tuned into politics, politics is tuned into you. If you don't control it, it's going to control you. It's going to erode your livelihood and make life miserable for tens of millions of people. So we're going to open it up now for questions. We have all kinds of people on this Zoom conference call. And let's see how many questions come in on the issue of power to the people in comparison with questions on other topics. I've always been amazed at the lack of focus on the corporate domination of our world. Fewer and fewer giant corporations strategically plan almost everything that spells our political economy, our elections, our health care, our taxes, our land use, our housing, consumer well-being. They strategically plan the military budget, foreign policy is heavily shaped by their demands. They just go on and on. They're even strategically planning the commercialization of childhood. They go directly now when they never dared to years ago, selling junk food, junk drink, violent programming, circumventing family authority by the parents. And we just don't pay any attention to that. They talk about racism, sexism. Who do you think fomented that over our history? Cotton plantations, corporations, whether it's redlining today, differential wages for black and Hispanic people compared to white, the kind of discrimination in the healthcare area, public service discrimination. They don't want to pay their local taxes, the national taxes, these corporations. How do you explain that? And then we'll go to the questions, Richard. How do you explain this situation where it's not just the dominant 800-pound gorilla that's ignored, it's the dominant 800-pound gorillas all over the country. There isn't a single government agency in the federal government that you can say does not have as its greatest outside influence corporations, even the Department of Labor. And now they even control what we own, the public lands, the public airwaves, all the research development set up all these new industries in the last 60 years. That's tax money. That's the commons, and they control what we own. So how do you explain that? It's a real problem. And I think what people don't realize is maybe they don't realize just how much corporations are spending to influence laws and Congress. For example, drug companies in 2018 spent $228 million for 1,400 lobbyists to influence Congress. Now, you and I, as people, have a better, a stronger power, that is the power of our vote, the power of protest, that we can actually elect accountable candidates to Congress who are not going to be bought by drug companies or other corporations, but we fail to exercise this right. So I think the idea of the book and the idea of what we're talking about is that people need to get motivated to realize that we can reverse the situation. And it's a very steep hill, but because corporations are throwing millions and millions of dollars at our elected officials, but we have the power. And, uh, definitely. You point out how the drug companies have more lobbyists on Congress than the members of Congress, 535 of them. But the key institution that can turn this around is the Congress, and we can take control of the Congress. We outnumber the 1,500 or so corporations who get their way with a majority. And there's no excuse for us not to take control of the Congress. We can have Congress watchdog lobbies, clubs, 
all over the country. People have all kinds of hobbies, and they spend three to 500 hours a year and maybe $500. If 1% of the people had Congress as their hobby, and <laughs> is there any institution that, for good or bad, has more impact on the American people other than these large corporations? Congress has enormous authority to break them up, to discipline them under the rule of law, to make them pay for their ravaging wrongdoing, to give small business more voice, to give local economies more voice. So it's the Congress, people. The three things is the corporations, the Congress, and the citizenry. And that's what a lot of your book's about, Richard Panchek. Power to the people, a young people's guide fighting for our rights as citizens and consumers, full of examples, very clearly written, even physically. It's an easy book to read. You have photographs throughout the book, some interesting cartoons from American history. And I hope people will use it as a gift to young people for the coming holidays. It's got a great feel to it physically as well as visually, but nothing compared to the content. It is the most clear attempt to convey issues of power to young people in their own perceived self-interest and anticipation of their growing into becoming effective, engaged adults that make a democracy proud of them. So let's go to the questions and Steve, David, and open it up. Thank you, Ralph. Yes, I want to reiterate, we are speaking with Richard Panchik. We will link to his new book, Power to the People, at ralphnativeradiohour.com. It's from Seven Stories Press, and I have a copy of it so well laid out with a lot of photos and graphics. It's a very readable book. But first, we're going to get to your listener questions, but we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll do that with the audience questions. But first, we're going to check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, December 17, 2021. I'm Russell Mokhyber. As the nation's largest discount retailer, Dollar General stores are widely known by shoppers for their low-priced merchandise. At the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, the company is recognized for its long history of violations and repeated failures to protect its workers from on-the-job hazards. Since 2016, OSHA has proposed more than $3.3 million in penalties in 54 inspections at Dollar General locations nationwide. Typical violations include blocked electrical panels, obstructed exits, forklift housekeeping, and sanitation violations. Each of these violations represents hazardous and unsafe conditions, placing workers at risk of injury. Dollar General has a long history of disregarding safety measures to prevent serious injury or death in the event of fire or other emergency, said OSHA Chief Doug Parker. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman and Ralph. We're going to take uh, some questions from the audience, but first I want to see if, David, do you want to weigh in before we open it up to the audience? Thank you so much for this, Richard. You know, in the first chapters of your book, you discuss Ralph Nader as a young person, his early interests, and how he got into advocacy work. What lessons do you want the readers to take from that portrait of young Ralph and specifically Ralph, can this country produce right now another Ralph Nader? I think I want the readers to take away from that is that the purpose of talking about Ralph is that the readers are going to be mainly young people. And I want them to see that it can start, it does start with their interests as young people, with being a citizen 
of the world with understanding things as young people and questioning things. And that's what Ralph did. And that's one reason that he went down the path he did is because he had the curiosity of the interest of the participation. And it was also due to his parents getting him there. But I think it's an important lesson for kids to read about someone else who started off down that path as a child. Well, I lost a lot of friends to car crashes in those days. They were lost their lives or were severely injured. And I wanted to find out why. I used to hitchhike a lot, as you pointed out in the book. And I wanted to find out why. And I realized it wasn't just the driver, that you could survive crashes if you had seatbelts, airbags, padded dash panels, collapsible steering columns, rollover protection, better brakes, better tires. And people weren't getting that from Detroit. Like you said, it was a curiosity that drove me. And I didn't stop until Congress passed the auto and highway safety laws in 1966. And people have said that over 4 million lives have been saved in that period of time, including requiring foreign imports to meet higher safety standards that weren't required in those countries. So, you know, it's important to know that anybody can do this. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any contacts. I just had a driving rage about all these people being killed when they could have been saved, as many of them are being saved now. Well, let's go to the questions, though. All right. Very good. Thanks, Ralph. Uh, Hannah, why don't you tee us up for our first audience question? So our first question comes to us from Paul Flansberg, and his question is about social media. How do we balance social media accountability with overt censorship? Well, I think the word censorship is another hot button word that gets thrown out there a lot. There is a balance between what First Amendment rights we all have and with the balance between that and being injured, being wrongfully harmed by another person or a corporation or a social media company. And I think it's pretty clear cut when you are being injured by someone else it's not censorship in many cases. It's a clear-cut case of civil wrong, that you've been wronged and action needs to be taken. And so sometimes the word censorship is just an excuse on some people's part. Yeah, the law of defamation is not blocked by freedom of speech. You have freedom of speech, but you can't defame people. That's a tort, a wrongful injury. You can be held accountable. And just as Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said, Earlier in the 20th century, you don't have the freedom to falsely shout fire in a crowded theater. And when it comes to these companies, they're doing it for profit to begin with. It's not like a charitable endeavor. There's a lot of ways to deal with these companies through the law of monopoly, anti-monopoly, that they monopolize their area of the economy in such a way they can be regulated as, quote, essential services, end quote, and held more accountable. I like the way where Facebook users organize, and they tried to organize, and they had called themselves Facebook users, and Facebook said, you can't use our name because that, that's proprietary. <laughs> so, But parents have got to organize to protect their children here. I know parents who don't let their children until a certain age even use social media. They become readers. They become articulate youngsters. They're not overwhelmed by this imposed narcissism and sadism that infects the social media now. 
billions of times a day, and partly because they're anonymous. If you require people to put their name behind their messages on social media, you eliminate 95% of the vitriol and the intimidation. It's anonymity that's the problem, something we talked about earlier with Professor of Law Robert Falmouth, who's against this kind of anonymity at University of San Diego Law School. Our next question comes to us from Miles Flagg, and he has a question about how to rally one's cohort. Yeah, that's a real important inquiry. We've all had to face that. And one of them is you find common interests. As Saul Alinsky, the great organizer in the 60s in Chicago, would say, perceived self-interest. So you start with things where they agree with you on and you bring them forward. You give them backbone. You give them fortitude. You show them how the more skilled they are, the more effective citizens they're going to be. You appeal to their children. Margaret Mead, the famous anthropologist, once said that if we just appeal to people compassion for their own children, like protecting them with seatbelts was a case she used, we would get further with adults. So you appeal to the descendants of children and the grandchildren. Third is to show them what the alternative of inaction is. And you don't have to persuade them. I mean, they're already describing how they're being ripped off or deprived or suffering or denied. So you you show them, look, I mean, if you keep going on this path, you're just going to suffer and your families are going to suffer. So what's the big deal of locking arms with a bunch of neighbors and community people and and starting to change things. It's amazing. 500 people signing clearly on a petition can get a senator to come for a town meeting organized by the people themselves and their own agenda. Just 500 people clearly signing their names and their occupation and their contact numbers will freak out some of these senators. They're not used to even that level of activity. Ralph Miles Flagg here. It's just an honor. I'm calling from Canada and I'm a boomer. And uh, in the 60s, I remember you uh, often on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation programs. And as a boomer, I'm really feeling it's time for me to connect with my cohort of boomers and to stand up as elders. Another suggestion I picked up on uh, is to write my head of state with my concerns and my ideas. And so far, I've written 11 letters to Queen Elizabeth II. Just wanted you to, you know, elaborate on, you know, the concept of elders. And, and I'd also like to acknowledge that I'm on the land of Treaty 7, the traditional territory of the Nitsitapi, the Blackfoot people. And I respect their ways of being language, traditions, and culture. Thank you. Well, remember, as a Canadian, there was that period in the 60s when the U.S. was being swallowed into Vietnam and didn't get full health care while Canada was getting health care because they want part of the Vietnam assault. So this is the price of wars. Well over a million Americans have died because they don't have health insurance because the Congress told President Johnson there wasn't enough money because they're spending it in Vietnam. And now in Canada, because of the burst out of Saskatchewan with Tommy Douglas, all you do is show a card and you're covered medically and no one is excluded. You don't have anywhere near the problems we have in the United States on that. Writing to your member of parliament or member of Congress is very important. In Canada, you don't even need a stamp. If you write to your member of Congress, 
you have the franking privilege that members of our Congress have going the other way. They can write you without a stamp. And we're working on a project now to break through these members of Congress. They've become arrogant. Their phone system is automated. They don't get back to you on important issues. And so we have to work on that. That's how down our democracy is, where you don't even have access to your members of Congress in terms of correspondence the way you used to a few decades ago. But that's because not enough people are working on it. It doesn't take that many. How many times do we have to make that point? Our country is full of a handful of people backed by public opinion, determined, knowing what they're talking about and focusing on the decisional arena, whether it's a Congress, state legislatures, local city councilors, or, or what have you. Thanks for Canada here. We've got a lot to learn from Canada. Our next question is for Richard about school curriculums, and it comes to us from Philip Liu. Hey everyone. So my question was just in relation to how do we get Richard's book into more secondary schools? Because it does seem like there is an assault now on banning certain disagreeable concepts like critical race theory and other topics that the right have vilified. So how do we get more related, engaging material for young people to evade any kind of now censured thinking? That's a good question. And it's interesting because most of my children's books have been extremely popular with homeschoolers, which implies that they have, the homeschoolers, the parents, have seen the usefulness of giving their kids these books to read as part of their curriculum. Now, the problem is that when you get to school boards and when you get to school districts, you're not having the same kind of penetration. And I don't think my books really make it into public schools in the same way. So it is a problem. I think that the curriculums are being dictated by people, again, who we need to hold accountable. School boards are electable people. You know, they're electable boards. And we have to really pay attention to the issues that they will put forth as their platform when they're running for the school board. And the same with anybody else who's in charge of our schools. I think it's extremely important. Your book is perfect for social studies teachers. That's the portal, listener. Social studies teachers get it. And they would love a book like this. This is not a book that deals with discriminatory injustice. It deals with indiscriminatory injustice. That is all people are being adversely affected by these injustices. All people can use the rights that Richard has talked about in the law of torts, law of wrongful injury, and other rights and remedies. So it'll be less controversial than a book on discriminatory injustice. And I might add that the way to unify people in this country is with the injustice that affects all people not just injustice that's discriminatory. Because once you deal with injustice that affects all people, you address the problem of some people get ripped off or discriminated more than others. But you start with a unified base. There are 65 million low-income whites in this country that are entitled to ask NPR and the U.S. Congress, what about us? So I've always gone, like auto safety, that's indiscriminate injustice, the hazards of automobiles. It doesn't matter who you are, what's the color of your skin. People were dying 
from preventable causes in unsafe motor vehicles. And that's true in one product area of our economy after another. So this book is very, very suitable to be used by social studies teachers in middle school and high schools all over the country. So try your own community on that. Thanks for the question, listener. So our next question comes to us from Walid Saad. He has a question about having a moral career in today's America. Hello, Ralph. My question is, so in today's America, to make a stable living, especially in the big cities, one has to have a high income. Now, I do attend a top university, and the career path is to work for a top corporation to really have a a stable living. Now, I do know the harm that these corporations do to society, and I am opposed to working for them. However, one needs to work for them to live a stable living. Now, can one work for them and advocate against them at the same time, or is it just immoral? Is there another path for young people out there? Yes, there are. First of all, most big corporations with millions of workers are are not unionized. Unionized corporations, United Auto Workers, tamed the giant auto companies in the 1930s and got decent wages, great benefits, because they had a union fighting for them. So we have to reform our union laws. The Democrats are not paying attention to that. We have the most anti-union organizing laws in the Western world, led by the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947. So that's one. The second is a movement I started with a a simple conference in 1971. It's actually the 50th anniversary, the whistleblowing conference. We now have whistleblowing protection laws in 47 countries. It spread from the United States. And that means that people who are wanting to blow the whistle on the opiate manufacturers or Boeing Corporation for 737 MAX massacre are protected. They can file for whistleblowing protection the federal government. And they can, in some cases, when they blow the whistle on Wall Street rackets or companies that rip off the taxpayer and the federal government and contracts, they can get bounties. There have been whistleblowers who've gotten several million dollars and they needed it because it's very hard to be a whistleblower and then you get fired and then you get blacklisted and you can't get a job in your area of expertise. So the whole area of whistleblowing is something that needs to be part of our education among young people. It's a completely different situation now than in the old days when whistleblowers were called snitches or disgruntled employees. They're people who take their conscience to work and they provide an internal check and balance. Because one thing about it is they're morally driven. And as such, They can't be controlled by these companies. They can't be bought off. And the companies don't know how many more like them. So like in the Boeing case, you had a couple whistleblowers. Now there are more whistleblowers. Now a Senate report has just come out documenting seven knowledgeable whistleblowers on the Boeing situation alone. That would have been unheard of years ago. Who started that? A handful of citizens. So the whistleblowing can affect every corporation in the way that you seem to be pointing. Thanks for the question, by the way. It's a a very important one. Thank you very much, Richard Pashik, author of Power to the People, A Young People's Guide to Fighting for Our Rights as Citizens and Consumers. You can get it easily from Seven Stories Press. I'm sure on the screen is the way to obtain it, whether single or in bulk copies, as David said, to be sent to libraries or to your friends as a holiday gift. As someone once said in a famous movie, 
it's better than a box of chocolates. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for having me. And I'll just say, remember, all change starts with one person. So make sure everyone you remember that. That's an excellent way to go out. I want to thank you, Richard, again, Richard Panchek, and thank you to Seven Stories Press and the American Museum of Tort Law, who helped produce today's program. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call the wrap-up. A transcript of this show will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour website soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free, go to nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to corporatecrimereporter.com. And the American Museum of Tort Law has gone virtual. Go to tortmuseum.org to explore the exhibits, take a virtual tour, and learn about iconic tort cases from history. And be sure to check out their latest program, How Advocates Are Going to Court to Confront the Climate Crisis. That program drops next Tuesday. All that and more at tortmuseum.org. The producers of the Raffinator Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. I hope this program has unleashed new and renewed civic energies that multiply themselves. Thank you, listeners and viewers.